Hi, I'm Wesley Strick. I wrote the screenplay for Martin Scorsese's Cape Fear. I also recently watched The Sopranos pilot for the very first time. You're listening to Pada Bing. I'm Vic Singh, and you're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos one episode at a time. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this right now. If you love the podcast, this project, and what it's all about, please spread the word. Share this episode or your favorite one with one new person. That's all it takes. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube, at Potabing. And if you're up for it, you can support the show by visiting glow.fm slash Potabing. To play in the next trivia show for a chance to win swag, guest on the pod, or just secure permanent bragging rights, DM at Potabing on Instagram. Finally, as always, thank you for listening and being part of this journey. Coming up is a conversation I had with Wesley Strick. Wesley wrote the screenplay for Martin Scorsese's Cape Fear. Will Janowitz, who played Finn on The Sopranos, and who also was a guest on this pod, number nine, I believe, connected us after becoming aware that I'd said Cape Fear was probably my favorite Scorsese picture. Once Wesley and I connected, I was fascinated to learn that he'd never seen The Sopranos. Now, this was because he was raising small children during its run and could never find time. I can totally relate. But because he had always wanted to get into it, being a guest on this podcast was a bit of a catalyst for him. So special thanks to Will for connecting us and ultimately for allowing me to be able to share this wonderful conversation with you. The Soprano stuff is about 30 minutes in, but if you're a Scorsese, De Niro, or Cape Fear fan, the first half is sure to delight. In addition to writing Cape Fear, Wesley has had a long and transcendent career as a writer and producer in Hollywood. A few of his other projects include Arachnophobia, and more recently, The Man in the High Castle. We get into all of it and more, and I look forward to having him back on the pod once he's worked his way through the series. Excited to share this one with you in the meantime. So here it is, my conversation with Wesley Strick. So, Wesley, thanks for coming in and being a part of this. I'm excited to be here. Let me give some quick context before we begin. So, on one of the episodes of the pod, I mentioned my favorite Scorsese movie. Mm. Uh, And my choice was a little unorthodox to some of the listeners, especially at least by uh, normal Scorsese aficionado standards. Um, I said it was a toss-up between Cape Fear and The Departed, Hmm. but I leaned Cape Fear because it stuck to me more, especially over time. And what I mean by that is it's a movie that doesn't leave you once you see it. Oh, is that true? For me. Uh-huh. Now, you wrote the screenplay for the movie. I did. And we got connected through Will, who was on The Sopranos. Will Janowitz. A little full circle there. Mm-hmm. Now, I wanted to have you on the show for two reasons. One, to discuss Cape Fear. And two, to get your sort of expert analysis on The Sopranos pilot episode. I don't know if it's going to be expert. Right. But the reason it's just the pilot Mm -hmm. is because to my surprise in our early conversations, I learned that you had never seen the show. Never saw it. 
But for purposes of this podcast, you were kind enough to watch the pilot. And so I'm going to pepper you with questions uh, similar to the way a lawyer would examine an expert witness, if you will. Uh, so, and thank Maybe you for, I need my lawyer. <laughs> so thank you for indulging me on that. But first, let's start with Cape Fear. Okay. Any insights on why it got remade? I know. Yeah, I, I do know why it got remade. You want to hear this yes. convoluted story? There was a universal executive named Janet Yang. This was back in the late 80s. Very smart executive. Whose job was to go through the universal library and find titles that she thought were ripe for remaking, for whatever reason, in all genres, not just thrillers. Um, so she, I think she watched hundreds of universal titles and made a list and distributed the list among producers and directors at Universal, one of them being Steven Spielberg. And he, uh, I guess his attention was, t- uh, was focused on Cape Fear, probably a movie that was a favorite of his when he was a kid. I, I, don't, I don't know that I ever asked him, really. But his conception was to remake it with Robert De Niro as Max Cady. That was his idea. And he was going to direct it. Um, and Amblin, his company at the time before DreamWorks, called me and said that uh, Stephen wanted me to write the script, which surprised me. First, I'd never met Spielberg. I had no connection to him. I knew, if, I knew one of the development girls who worked for him. Um, that, that's about it. Oh, oh, what happened was, okay, <laughs> it gets a little more complicated. One of his protégés was a young director named Phil Juano, who was in his 20s and like out of USC, I think. Um, some enfant terrible director. And, um, and Phil wanted for his next project after um, Three O'Clock High, which was his like, first uh, picture, he wanted to direct uh, a, my sort of spec script that got me into the biz, which is called Final Analysis. He, and he did end up directing it. Anyway, Stephen took a, a major interest in Phil's career, wanted to help steer it. So he said to Phil, before you commit to directing Final Analysis, let me read it and make sure it's up to snuff. He read it, and I guess he was impressed by it. So That uh, was your break story. Yeah, okay. exactly. So It wasn't arachnophobia that got his... No, in fact, so I'll, I'll explain the, um, the chronology of this. Yeah, so Final Analysis got his attention. It was sort of an erotic thriller, very 80s mm-hmm. kind of um, script. Um, bit, a bit of a steal from Body Heat, I have to confess. Um, but Hollywood got very excited about it. I, I, I met hundreds of, uh, I'm, I'm not exaggerating, hundreds of people in Hollywood who had read the script and wanted to meet me. Um, okay, so Stephen then thought I would be the guy to write Cape Fear. Mm-hmm. And they sent me the cassette of the original movie. I knew the title, but I didn't know the movie. And I watched it, and I just thought, mm, no, I don't think this is really for... It started out kind of promisingly, I thought, for me. Yeah. You know, as like a Hitchcockian kind of thing. But then, it, as far as I was concerned, it got less and less interesting as it just turned into like a fight, a prolonged fight between Gregory Peck and Robert Mitchum. Mm-hmm. You know, so you weren't just, into the movie? Not that much, okay. you know. I recognized that for a movie from the early 60s, it was t- well done and all of that, but it just didn't, like strike me as something I could do like an amazing job on it or anything it didn't inspire me so I I called them back the next day and I I said you know I'm really flattered that Mr. Spielberg was interested but I I just don't think it's for me and they were like you're passing and I said yeah passing on Spielberg yeah to be clear here exactly I was and and they sort of 
are you sure? And I was like, yeah, I, I really... And I, just because I just didn't think I could do a good, good job on it, you know? Anyway, they called the next day and said, uh, Stephen wants to talk to you. And then I got really scared. And I spent a whole day thinking of how I was going to explain this to Spielberg. And I, I didn't want to put down the movie. I just wanted to express that I felt I was miscast as, as the writer. So I, I kind of had this five-minute speech I, I had devised. And I drove to the lot where he was shooting a, a movie. And he walked in a room. Never met him before. It was quite terrifying. And I launched into my five-minute speech. Did you practice it? I, I had practiced it. And uh, when I was done, he, he stuck out his hand and he said, well, I'm really excited you're coming aboard. And I was, the next thing I knew, I was shaking his hand, thinking, oh, no, what do I do now? And there were no cell phones in those days, so I jumped in my car. I had to drive all the way home. It was like a long drive from the west side, uh, thinking I have to call CAA, my agents at the time, and tell them that there's been this terrible misunderstanding and they have to extricate me from this project but when I get home there's like 10 messages on my phone machine congratulating me from CAA and Universal and we're into it and we're making the deal business affairs is already like so I I just took a deep breath and uh, Cape Fear is my next project you know you're gonna run with it Uh so you gave him a no but you didn't actually say no you kind of just danced around it and he took that as a welcome aboard yeah he's I've heard your concerns I guess so he Spielberg me yeah you know wow I love it I was in awe the script you wrote was based on Cape Fear the original screenplay Mm -hmm. and a book The Executioners which is sort of the foundation for this whole universe Um, I'm kind of a nerd I ask kind of nerdy questions so thank you for indulging how do you tell a story that's been told Mm. Uh, I'm interested in process and approach well my that's a very good question normally I try to not get steeped too much in the previous material the underlying material um, for, for instance, I read the novel, but I just read it once, as though I were just reading it uh, for pleasure. I only watched, I never watched Cape Fear again, the original, after that one night, um, which led to my soft pass on the movie. Never looked at it again. I didn't want to be over-influenced by either of those things. I, whatever I picked up from them, I only wanted to pick up sort of on the fly. And the rest I wanted to run with, and maybe even use um, false memories of stuff in the in the book and the movie to to invest in my my plot, just so it just wasn't a uh, slavish, you know, re, rehashing of, of that material. Did you have a mandate, or did you have creative license to give it what, um, give it what you wanted? That. I, no, I, I don't know that Stephen ever um, laid out any real um, sort of co- overarching concept. Um, it was clear to me that because it was a Stephen movie, it was going to be bigger than the original movie, um, longer, more probably more because of longer more plot um the original is very simple yeah um straightforward this is obviously going to have to be embellished and i figured i had to um weave a, a lot of spielberg isms into it just to make it fun and and steven i'm not putting him down I just, he just has a certain entertainment quotient you knew your customer yeah yeah i just wanted to figure out well and we met several times just chatting um we had fun just spitballing ideas he had some fun ideas like he brought the idea of Max laughing uh, uproariously in the movie theater you know annoying everybody right. sm- smoking a big cigar I watched it last night I remember <laughs> yeah. that, was, that was his and the idea that uh, the uh, maid that he dressed up as the maid 
with Stevens. Those were his two. Chilling. Yeah, really scary, creepy. Those were his, I think, if I recall, those were his two big contributions to the plot of the movie. I, from, from my end, I brought in the idea that um, Sam Bowden was not uh, an angel. Uh, by any means, that he had done something, actually committed malfeasance mm-hmm. as a lawyer, and that um, and that Max Cady was justified in right. a sense for, for his uh, rage at at being let down by his lawyer. I mean, um, it's B- never Bowden disc- had been unethical, right? It's never disclosed in the film how Cady knew. Was that deliberate? Um, I think he had access to the files. It, does it, is it not it, clear in the... It's not crystal clear. The viewer is being asked to do a little detective work, uh-huh. which I like and respect. Mm. But Nick Nolte's character makes a point to say, there's no way he could actually know this. Yeah. Okay, so I don't really remember the details, but the, the idea is that um, first, uh, Katie had to teach himself to read. Right. So he had a, he had a lot uh, of obstacles in his way, but he had 14 years to do it. So he learned, taught himself to read, then he taught himself to read legalese. Then he accessed the files and went through every s- scrap of paper. So he surmised it from that. Well, yeah, apparent, uh, I mean, the premise is that he got to the bottom of that pile and there was a little piece of paper that would have, it would have resulted in his probably getting a much more favorable uh, outcome. Yeah. And, and, and what I thought was so... I like the idea, having hit on it, because you could see Max's point of view, which is always it's always valuable to be able to write inside the head of the villain. So he's not just being a bad guy. He, he actually has a point of view that's legitimate. And then you also feel for Nick Nolte, who, or Sam Bowden, who was sort of trying, looking at the greater good of society, trying to keep this guy in prison for as long as he possibly could. Mm-hmm. But in doing so, he transgressed uh, and did a bad, a bad, bad thing. Yeah. So you kind of, in a sense, you feel for both of them. Um, and uh, it's just sort of a commentary on the, the um, dilemma of, 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 that life presents. Sure. One, you know, ethically, morally. I'm going to get to how it went from Spielberg to Scorsese in a moment, but okay. I want to I rewind for a second. Mm-hmm. You started out as a music journalist. Mm-hmm. How did you pivot to screenwriting? Well, so I, I picked up rock writing in my early 20s because I just knew everything there was to know about rock in those days, which were the mid-70s, um, mid to late 70s, because I, I'm a rock musician and a rock songwriter. And so I always had rock bands, um, and I played all over New York, but I, I needed to earn a living. And uh, I realized I could uh, parlay my rock knowledge into, a, you know, a check. Everything's a parlay. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Uh-huh. So I, um, yeah, so I started writing for the magazines, and that was an amazing, like, three-year run I had from, like, 22 to almost 25, where I interviewed lots of my heroes, and then it was the new... Uh, wave period and the punk period and I was living by coincidence near CBGB so my editor would just say like show up at this bar this biker bar tomorrow night and there's this band called the Ramones and just check them out and then interview them afterwards and I was like who the you know who who are the Ramones why why do I have to talk to them why do I have to talk to the talking heads like what who Blondie I mean who, who are these people you know and I was sort of feeling sorry for myself I wanted to you know meet big bands like Kansas you know so that turned out great, too. I, I ended up hanging out with all those legendary Lower East Side bands. And writing about... I was one of the first people to write about them. Lou Reed? Um, I never 
interviewed Lou. I, I would sit, I sat and drank with him at a club called Ashley's one okay. night, and he was he was kind of fun. Michael Imperioli is a big star on the show. Mm-hmm. He's a big fan of Lou Reed. Wrote mm-hmm. a book, wrote a novel, his first novel about a boy who lives downstairs from Lou Reed, and they strike up a friendship. Oh, oh that's cool. Well, Lou is definitely one of my idols. I mean, Lou Reed and Bowie. Yeah. Yeah. Back to sort of another nerd question. When you adapt something, mm. is choosing the point of view one of the first techniques that you use? And the reason I'm asking that for this particular example mm-hmm. is that in the original, Sam Bowden was not the central character. Mm. But in the Martin Scorsese version, he kind of is. Who's the central character in the original? Is um, it, is it um, Katie? It's more or less kind of an ensemble, mm. and, and there's not very there's not a lot of character development, obviously, which is a big difference. Mm. Yeah. So it's not easy to stick your thumb on it in the original, but on this one, it's sort of the story about uh, Sam and his family. Right. Yeah. Was that deliberate? No, it was probably unconscious, actually. Okay. But now that you bring it up, I was, you know, I I had a young family then when I was writing the the screenplay. I started probably started writing in '89, so I I had a a three year old and a one year old. The movie came out in 91. Yeah. So I was on and off the movie for about, just about two years, I guess. Um, I mean, Marty and I worked on it together very um, inten- intensively uh, in the sort of spring and summer of 1990, just before it went into production. He and I just put our heads together, like from, I don't know, May to September, maybe, whenever we started shooting. You segue beautifully for me. Okay. It was supposed to be a Spielberg movie, mm-hmm. which I read. Yeah. Um, but apparently, and you can you can set the record straight. He thought it was too violent, mm. so he did Schindler's List instead, <laughs> and which was originally supposed to be a, a Scorsese picture. Yeah, so I can explain this. Okay, so perfectly. My question is: Do you have any insight on that swap? They're like throwing mm. footballs around. Like, I know with these, about it. With these blockbusters, what happened? What happened is that um, Stephen had the um, rights to make. Um, to adapt the Keneally, Thomas Keneally book, Schindler's List. Um, I think he hired Steve Zalian to write it. Maybe he had, I'm not sure whether he had a f- completed script, but at some point he got cold feet and decided he wasn't ready to take it on. He just didn't have, he felt the directorial maturity to do the movie and give it the gravitas that he thought it uh, needed. So he gave it to Scorsese, um, and Marty worked with Zalian at, at that point on the script for quite some time, as, as far as I know. Meanwhile, I was working with Stephen on Cape Fear. Then one day, Stephen, I guess, woke up and decided he, he was now a grown man and fully capable of directing Schindler's List. He had a change of heart. So he got on the phone with Marty, and he said, I'm, I'm going to ask to take it back from you. But I'm going to give you Cape Fear in return, and if that sounds like an unfair swap, I think he was also promising him a really um, rich deal at Universal to make Cape Fear, and that he had a he had that kind of power. Yeah, he definitely did. So he could talk to Sid Sheinberg at, at Universal and make sure that Marty was well compensated for Cape Fear. And I think that he knew that Marty was ha- having some financial troubles then, partly to do with Marty's addiction to um, buying rare movie prints, uh, which he was doing compulsively. And they were very expensive. He was tracking down, you know, really um, collectible, original 35 millimeters, uh, 65 millimeter, 16, all kinds of, wherever he could find them around the world, he he had at least one person, maybe more, scouting the globe for these prints. 
And then, you know, you have to have a place to store them where they're not going to deteriorate. So anyway, all that's very expensive. And um, I think he was, I think he needed, you know, to, to, I think he needed his next movie to be a, a big payday. So he took Cape Fear. And, um, and then, and of course, I think it was, I think it was comfortable for him also because De Niro was already involved. And oh, he was? Others, yeah, Stephen okay. had designated him as Max Cady. So he was, he was the other element, you know. Um, or the element, I and they had a, they had a strong pre-existing relationship at that point already. De Niro and, and and Martin Scorsese. Oh yeah, they'd made some movies. classic movies. Yeah, yeah. six or seven at that point, if not. Yeah, I don't know how many, but of course they'd made yeah. Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. Right. Yeah. Did the script change when you delivered it to Spielberg, and then you transitioned? By the way, uh, how did you take that the transition work going from Spielberg to Scorsese? Was that an issue for you, or were you? No, no, I was thrilled. Um, I mean, I. I, I idolized Scorsese, um, and I, you know, I grew up in New York City, so Marty was like a real um, iconic New York director, okay. as far as I was concerned. So the transition was seamless as far as you were concerned. Yeah, I mean, I was pinching myself, and I couldn't really believe that it was it was actually going to happen. It just seemed too good to be true. And then I thought, oh well, Mar- I really did believe that Marty would get rid of me and hire Richard Price or somebody else that, or whoever else he'd been working with at the time. Uh, you know, in that period. Yeah. Other writers that... Because I was warned that he was a kind of very private, insular sort of guy, not particularly outgoing or friendly, and that he'd be nice to me, but maybe I'd be sort of dismissed sooner rather than later. And I was, and I was sort of set for that to happen. You were expecting the worst. A lot. Well, yeah, it best. happens a lot in Hollywood, and you just have to get over it. Yeah. And, and hope that there's something left of your work on the screen, whatever, but you have to move on. But I have to say that Marty never um, even, as far as I knew, came close to uh, replacing me. He, we, we just got to work, like, almost immediately, sometimes with De Niro uh, in the room. And we went through the script, and, and Marty actually found sort of all the things that he could see I had put in for Steven Spielberg. And he asked me to take them out, because he wanted a different sort of tone, something a little less um, entertaining, I guess, and something a little uh, darker. And so we sort of streamlined it from that standpoint. And, um, you know, I think it's funny, though. It didn't change that much. Um, that was my next question. Yeah. I, I, and people uh, who reviewed the movie assumed that it was Marty's um, influence to make uh, Nick Nolte's marriage, you know, uh, f- failed. That Nolte was uh, unfaithful and all of that stuff. But no, that was my... I, I put that in too because I was just trying to complicate the situation. Yeah. Um, of course, Marty liked all of that. Uh, he, he, he wanted me to... We used to have uh, discussions about, can you make them the fight longer? Like the fight between him and Jessica. But Marty, it's already three pages. He's like, well, an Italian fight is six pages. <laughs> and I, I was like, well, a Jewish fight is three. Can we compromise like four and a half pages? Anyway, so we, we sort of uh, negotiated Along those lines. Love that. But I'll tell you, the one major thing, there was just one moment where uh, I felt like there was a potential roadblock. Um, and he was always, Marty was always really friendly with me. We got along great. Um, but one day I walked into his apartment to work, and he said, just out of the blue, he said, um, you know that scene where Katie com- comes to the high school and he starts chasing the girl? Mm-hmm. He said, I don't want to do that. That's, you know, that worked in 1960 or whatever, whenever the original film was from. I forget the exact year. He said, but uh, if we can't come up with an alternative to that chase, 
I don't want to direct this movie. Those were his words, and it really, like, <laughs> freaked me out. What was it about that scene that got him... Uh, I don't know. Point for him? I, don't, I don't, to this day, I don't know. He just suddenly got hung up on it. He had never mentioned it before, and it was very similar to the original sequence, but a little more elaborate, a la uh, what you'd expect in a Spielberg sequence. So it was maybe the last kind of... A vestige um, of Spielberg? Vestige of a Spielberg-y sequence, but it did come from the original movie. Anyway, that's what Marty said. He, it was the only time he ever got a little huffy with me and I was really taken aback and I said let me think about it I remember walking back to the hotel where I was staying thinking shit I have to solve this like now and I thought what I'm going to do the opposite of a chase what's the opposite of a chase what's the opposite of a chase a seduction so I came in the next morning I said Marty here's what instead of chasing Danny the girl uh, Max is going to seduce her he, with his words. He's going to lure his, her. Yeah, exactly. And Marty's like, good, let's do it. We're on. We're back on. So it was like my 24 hours of uh, uncertainty and terror. Well, you solved it. I did. Yeah. But I took, it's you a know, great feeling. It was an easy solve because I was like, let's just turn it 180 degrees. Yeah, so he's looking yeah. at it from a completely different lens. Yeah, and then we did that scene that turned out amazing between Juliet and uh, yeah. Lewis. And Awkward. Max. Really, yeah, really. So, that was obviously one of the creepy. Tone, creepy, yeah. Mm. Hitchcock influenced the visual choices in the film, the mm-hmm. original and this one. Yeah. Uh, it's also well documented, the camera angles, lighting, and editing. In fact, the original was supposed to be a Hitchcock movie. Oh, I is that true? The original one. It was on the table for him. Uh-huh. And, uh, that you, makes sense. You know how these things go. Sure. It doesn't happen. Uh, there's actually a touch of Hitchcock in certain sequences of The Sopranos as well. So mm. his name is, you know especially in terms of angles and presentation with respect to The Sopranos. How mm-hmm. much did Hitchcock influence the script? Mm. Probably a great deal, just in the sense that I was a Hitchcock aficionado, and I'm sure Marty is too. I, I can't recall if we ever really explicitly talked about Hit, Hitchcock. I mean, I would ask him all the time if, he was, if I felt like he was relaxed on the day while we were shooting. Marty, why did you set up that shot the way you did? Like, why did you have the camera, like, dolly, you know, dolly the left and then sort of rise on the crane? And uh, he would explain to me, but often he was um, just, or I shouldn't say just, often he was um, lifting shots from, like, John Ford movies and Raoul Walsh movies and uh, uh, just any number of uh, Anthony Mann movies, people that, that Marty revered. Um, and he would just tell me which shots from which movie he had just um, lifted. And I realized that his head was like a, inside his head was a Rolodex of shots, but like thousands of shots from hundreds of movies. Um, some European films, you know, French New Wave films, all, you know, uh, Melville films, um, all kinds of stuff. So that that was fascinating to me. In a way, I I didn't learn that much from from Marty's explanations, because it was like you'd have to get inside the computer to really understand it. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're opening the folder, and he's showing you all the stuff that's in it, Yeah, he's not explaining the intent. Not or... exactly, no. Yeah. Um, he, he didn't have time for that. Right. Yeah. And he was, I mean, he didn't realize that maybe I wanted to explore. I mean, he, he was making a movie. So. Yeah. He was uh, working. He was working. And he was very generous about um, letting me just sit next to him. Hang out. Yeah, I mean, we did that for like four months. Of course, yeah. Yeah. And oh, and he brought me into the editing room later because he was trying to cut the movie down from its original runtime, which was over two hours. He wanted it to be two hours uh, max. Why? It just, he felt it's a thriller. It has to have pace. Okay. (laughs) He later abandoned that. (laughs) 
<laughs> with departed and and the Irishman I hear is like three hours and forty five minutes. Yeah, long. yeah, exactly. And and, and <laughs> what was uh what's it called? The island? Uh, oh, Shutter Island. Shutter Island that goes on for some. Yeah, you can fall asleep in that one, and you yeah. can come back and still be with it. Right, but in this period, he was he was intent on a, a movie that was roughly two hours, and and I think his first cut was maybe two hours twenty. So he wanted to, um, he didn't want to cut any major scenes. He wanted to lose running time by pulling out um, dialogue exchanges within scenes that weren't 100% essential. And he was concerned that he would fuck up the plot um, if, he, if he just sort of did it willy-nilly. So he, he always flew me to New York to sit when he did that with him and Thala Schoonmaker, the editor. And he would ask my, for my thumbs up or down on these cuts. It was really interesting. It was collaborative. Yeah, very. Did the score hmm. influence your writing in any way? No, I never thought he was going to use the original score. I was I was really surprised that he pulled out the old Bernard. Did you like Herman the choice? Score. Yeah, I think it's fabulous. It was reorchestrated by um, Elmer Bernstein. Bernstein, yeah. Um, and then, you know, uh, they ran out of score because the original movie is a good, what, half hour shorter. So they they had 90 minutes of score but two hours of a, a movie to fill. How do you fix that? So he went and he used um, the unused Herman score from, I think it was Torn Curtain, that Hitchcock and Herman came to blows on. They, like Hitchcock rejected it, wouldn't um, use any of it, and Herman refused to rewrite the score, and they uh, they never spoke again. Huh. So in the so it wasn't in, it was never used in the Hitchcock picture. So it was this unused Herman score. So Marty pilfered it for to fill in the blanks on on, on Cape Fear, and it worked beautifully. Yeah, I mean, just watching it yesterday again for the first time in a long time, it's just it's aged so well. Oh, it's got thanks. you use the word pace. Mm. You're just stuck to the screen. It's kind of snappy. It's very snappy, and uh, the cut to Katie in the car is all they <laughs> right. use two or three times. But yeah. it's such a nice like palate cleanse. Uh-huh. To like get you on your journey through right. this movie, how right. are they going to escape this guy? Uh, not Katie, uh, uh, Sam. Oh, oh, and Sam's, uh, oh, after Sam's driving. The news about the dog. The news about yeah, the dog, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you ever think about music when you're writing? No. Okay. I, I ask that because music's always on when I work, mm. and you were a music journalist, and you no, were music, yeah, so I, I was thinking I like... I play you, music often when I'm writing, but not music that I not a, imagine it's not driving will the be in story. the picture. No, it's just okay. to um, get me out of my depression. Um, likewise. <laughs> when De Niro gets out of jail... Mm-hmm. What about your books? All ready to read them. He walks right out and right into the oh, camera. Oh, and the script instructs simply without turning or breaking stride mm. is what you wrote in the script. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen that technique used since Cape Fear mm. where the subject goes literally right into the camera. What inspired that? Do you know where that came from? I don't from? know. I wasn't there that day. Um, they were shooting in front of a penitentiary. Yeah. And I think it was very limited. They didn't. They wanted like a skeleton crew. So I said, fine, I don't need to be there. Okay. And I wasn't around. Um I think Ben Stiller parodied that in his Cape Fear parody. When he had the Ben Stiller show, he did a hilarious parody. Of that? Yeah. Of walking into the camera? That was part of it, yeah. I need to check that out. <laughs> yeah. It was visceral, you know? Because yeah. he's, he's on a mission. He's going to get this guy. Mm-hmm. The camera notwithstanding. Yeah. You know? <laughs> oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's almost a literal kind of um, expression of that. The line later... 
There's a religiosity to the writing, um, a philosophical bent. Was that in the book was, or was that an enhancement that was added by you or through I, conversations that you had? I added it, um, and then De Niro ran with it. Like, you know, I, done, I did a lot of research into this. Another reason why I originally turned down the project was because it's so Southern, and I know nothing about the South, and I've spent no time there. So I felt... You know, I'm not going to do an authentic um, rendering of Southern, you know, mindset or atmosphere. But um, but once I was stuck writing the script, I did a lot of research into the South. And, of course, religiosity is baked into the South. And prisoners, you know, make tattoos in prison uh, from biblical quotes. So in the original script, I indicate a couple of them, and then mm-hmm. De Niro liked that, and then he added lots more. And then he, I, I gave Bob a few things to say, you know, Old Testament um, sort of vengeful things to say. And he wanted, he, it got to the point where uh, every night when I got home from set, there'd be a message from Bob asking for like five more quotes for tomorrow. So there I was like leafing through the Bible frantically at like midnight trying to find more, more things for him to say. And, and not, not all of them made it into the movie, but he wanted them at hand. He wanted to be able to fire them off uh-huh. and see what landed. Yeah. Oh, and I'll tell you one more funny thing. Because they, Marty and he expanded the whole uh, tattoo thing. To, intense to scene mega when, proportions. When they're looking at each other through the one-way glass. Yeah, so we had Mitchum on set for his one day. Um, you know, Mitchum, Martin Balsam, and Gregory Peck each work one day on the movie, which was great to meet those guys. And um, so Mitchum was there, and I'm, I'm behind the camera with Marty when they're setting up the shot, and Bob takes his shirt off, and it was the first time in the movie that the audience, not to mention Robert Mitchum, w- would see what's actually inscribed on this guy's torso. And I realized I didn't have a line for Mitchum in the script to react to that because... In my conception of it at the script stage, it wasn't anything spectacular. It was just like ordinary, you know, run-of-the-mill prison tattoos. Um, and then here was this extraordinary kind of uh, visual. And I said to Marty, I, I, I think Mitchum needs to say something. It's uh, a know. great line. And, and Marty said, yeah, I think you're right. What should he say? And I was like, I don't know, I don't know. Give me a minute, give me a minute. And I, I walked around the set, and then I came back and, and came up with, I don't know whether to look at him or read him. Yeah. And Marty liked that. I gave it to Mitchum. Mitchum said it, and I was just happy to like that I had solved that little problem. Sure. But when we started screening the movie, the audience laughed so hard because not that it's the most hilarious line, but they needed a laugh at that point. Yes. So badly. Yes. And I realized how important it was to the movie just by you know the fluke of 
of coming up with that line, it really helped the playability of the movie. It's so interesting that you said that because that's exactly what you need as a viewer. Yeah. And it's also one of the things that The Sopranos does mm. is that these horrific things are happening, right. but you'll be at a funeral and you'll be laughing. Uh-huh. They in, they insert this thing as a, as a moment to just take you out of yourself for a second. Yeah. Um, so you inserted that piece of dialogue. It was another question I had. You inserted that sort of like you called an audible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So that wasn't in the original script. No, it, it, it came I, into my horror. I stood there and I thought the scene's not working because it doesn't make sense that he's just looking at at this crazy um, torso and not and not reacting. I also like in the very beginning when you first see him for the first time, you see him doing the uh, the dips. Yeah. And you just see his back, but then you see all the books. And you wrote that in the script as mm-hmm. well, right? The yeah. the titles and the the picture of Nietzsche in uniform. <laughs> yeah. um, Nietzsche is also very prevalent in The Sopranos. There's a little bit of overlap that oh, I'm getting to. I was I didn't have a brilliant segue to The Sopranos, but I'm slowly actually <laughs> I, I meandering it, my way it. to one. I have a final question though sure. on on. Uh, this is a legendary sort of stage that you were on and these people that you were working with, and I would love to just hear some impressions that come to mind in 2019. What was principal photography like for that project? How simpatico were De Niro and Scorsese? What was it like watching them? Hmm. What observations or experiences from that time are still top of mind for you? Well, interesting. Um, You know, obviously they had forged this barium intense and in some ways kind of intimate partnership um, so that it was very difficult to sort of see what the inner workings of it were. Um, I think by that point in their, in their relationship, professional relationship, they, uh, they worked very instinctively. Um, so I just watched, but I couldn't really get a sense of um, the interpersonal dynamic between them. It was very um, enigmatic as, as far as I was concerned. I mean, when Marty just sat and talked to me. He was very open and funny, and we had a great relationship. But often I'd come to set and he would say, talk to Bob about something. He's in his trailer. He's doing something. I don't know what he's doing. And I didn't quite understand that. But I think that um, De Niro had, was isolating himself from the filmmakers to get into the head headspace of a convict uh, and of a... Uh, of a uh, uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Psychopath? Well, that too. Um, anyway, Bob was trying, I think, to stay in the headspace of a um, a man who didn't fit into society, and he would he would um, lock himself into his trailer with his trainer and train like four hours a day to get that body into the um, uh, state that the I was physique, in. yeah, the physique, four percent body fat. I read. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, and it was ripped. You know, he was, uh, he was in his late 40s, though. Yeah. So, not easy. But um, I, think, I think that's why he and, he and Marty during the, the picture, weren't, they weren't just hanging out and chatting. It was, it was much more intense than that. Because he, of the role. The role yeah, required it. I think so. And that's, that's, that's how De Niro works. I mean, when I, when I first met him, I went to New York with Spielberg, and we met De Niro in Tribeca at his um, loft. And he seemed very almost passive, and I was really surprised by that. It wasn't what I was expecting. And then I realized later, once I re- saw how he worked on Cape Fear, that um, he was in the role of the guy um, in the Penny Marshall movie he was, he was making at the time, who had um, like Parkinson's. And so he had sort of retreated just into this kind of frozen body. And he was still doing that after hours when we just came over to talk to him about um, 
Awakenings was the movie he was doing. So his whole persona was completely different. Then on Cape Fear, he was like bristling with testosterone and, and menace. That speaks to his uh, genius. <laughs> yeah. Right? I oh, mean, totally. to be able to go from that and that. And God, you got to imagine how much a mo- doing a movie like that or a role like Katie can change you. Oh, yeah. You know? like, just like Tony Soprano. How do you get sort of poison, so much was said? How do you poison. get out of it? I don't know. You it's know? not easy. Is it a fair statement to say that it does, it has like an, a lasting effect on your. I think uh, I think it could. Yeah, I do. I mean, in, I, unless like De Niro, you know, you just go from one performance to an, another, and and everybody metamorphose, says it's work, but know. is it really just work? Like, it's got to be some. Well, it's more. a process. It's really um, goes deep. Yeah, you know? I don't know. I don't know how they those actors do it. I just don't. There's no elegant transition here. <laughs> okay, so I'm go just going to smash cut <laughs> okay, cool. to Sopranos. Mm-hmm. Uh, before sitting down uh, today, you were kind enough to watch the pilot episode of The Sopranos for the first time, mm-hmm. uh, which to me, I'm actually very sort of like jealous. Well, can uh, I just say, it wasn't out of kindness. I've been meaning to watch The Sopranos for 20 years. I, I missed it when it uh, premiered because I didn't want my kids to have HBO. Yeah. It was part of this whole like parenting thing because sure, I was so I'm nervous right about now. raising my kids in Hollywood yeah. with me being a Hollywood screenwriter. And I was just always on the lookout for wherever I could trim the fat on, like, our, our privileged lifestyle. Sure. So I left out things like pay cable. And I always wanted to watch the show, and the more I heard about it, the more I wanted to watch it. But once you've missed something, like, you by a mile, it's, it's very difficult to find the, the, the um, a, a way back to, you know. Anything, to, yeah. Right. So but this, this way, was a perf- the perfect... Uh, Opportunity. I, I feel like this is an awesome opportunity because yeah. of, of a simple thing that I said on the podcast about Cape Fear. Here we are sitting together. Nice. Thank you for watching it. What was your initial reaction? Um, pure bliss. And my wife, too. We watched it together. I mean, I, I know a lot more than she does because I tend to read lots of critiques and reviews and essays, and I've read lots of interviews with David Chase, and I remember well the controversy over the fi- finale. Yeah. Um, so... And I, I, I'm also, I was, you know, a big uh, E Street uh, band fan. So, yeah. you know, I knew that uh, Steve, Steve, Steve was on, on the show and I always wanted to check him out without his bandana on. And uh, that, was, that was kind of... That was a wig, though. Yeah, I know. Still, I know. Yeah. You know why he wears the bandana, right? He no, had, he me. had a head injury uh-huh. at a young age. I think he has he had some scars, and oh, the bandana was a was a way to mask that. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, I only learned that through going uh, extremely deep on this show. Oh, that's <laughs> These funny. are the things that you pick up. But then the other two things that uh, that came to mind as I was watching it before we get into more substantial matters is there was Michael Gaston in, in the very first couple of se- sequences uh-huh. and I wrote for him on Man in the High Castle a TV show that I've been working on for yeah a I'm going to talk to you about that yeah and because I was the only Jewish writer on the show they always handed me the Michael Gaston scenes because he played a, a, a Jewish survivor of the Nazi uh, sort of Holocaust uh-huh. American Holocaust on the show so I was I was on the Michael Gaston uh, account uh, he was on my account uh so seeing you saw him on the pilot, and yeah, a little bit of full circle there as well. It was quite funny. Was, and it, then, was it unexpected, or did you? Yeah, you I didn't realize he was in the show. Okay. And then when I saw Lorraine Bracco, I, re- I remembered that I had originally named um, uh, Nolte's wife in the movie Karen, and Marty said, I, "You can't call her Karen. You can't call her Karen because that was her name on Goodfellas." Good and and for a year, it was like Karen, 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 Karen. So change her name. Can't be Karen. So that that was Love. my Lor- Lorraine Bracco story. So 
I'm going to ask you some technical stuff, but your initial your initial viewing of it was you, you were, I guess, uh, from a layperson to a professional, the threshold question for a pilot is, what's next? Mm, mm-hmm. And I was going to watch. Did you want to keep watching it? Oh, totally. And, and so did my wife, but then she got stuck watching. We were going to watch the second episode last night, but she got stuck watching the U.S. Open. Oh, I was because that was an amazing match last night the, with Diego Schwartzman. Schwartz. Schwartz. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I kind of wanted him to win. So I, did I. Yeah, I'm kind of like I, I'm kind of I'm like I'm a huge Federer guy. I go into a I don't even want to call my wife would call it a severe depression, but I kind of go into a. Uh, a funk it's called a Federer funk <laughs> and uh, my, my six year old watches uh, tennis with me now and when he Federer's losing he knows he's like daddy is Federer gonna lose <laughs> <laughs> the he Wimbled- feels it did you see Wimbledon the, no. the Djokovic final uh, it was it was heartburning but US Open's been amazing but um, by the way I didn't I didn't know that the show was gonna be in 16 by 9 I thought it was gonna be in like the older box format because of the age of the show I was surprised that it was uh he thought it was just going to be a, a a pilot and it was going to be done, so he wanted to make it as filmic as possible. Oh, great! He wanted it. He shot it like it was a movie. That's brilliant. And the way it ends with the with uh, Livia and Junior basically planning mm. the demise of yeah. their her her Chilling, son. Chillingly, right? That you you could have ended. It could have, you could have never seen anything else, and that mm. would have been a perfect little vignette. We might have to do something about your son. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a great way to end it. Yeah. They had no idea. I think there was a almost a two year lapse between that oh, wow. and the filming of episode two. Oh no kidding. Because it was just being tossed around like a ping pong ball. Oh crazy. Um what pulled you in? Um kinda everything. I mean, um most certainly um Gandolfini. Just his um performance and how you instantly empathized with him. Um maybe because of his um Obsession with the ducks. Uh, you know, that was just a great device. Humanizing device. Yeah, and it just sucked me in instantly. So anything repellent about him just sort of went away. How did you feel about the therapy as a device? Um, or as a vehicle to deliver the message of the show? Yeah. Um, that is, I think I'm going to get into that. Um, initially, I wasn't, I wasn't 100% sold on Baracko's performance there. She didn't quite seem strong enough. Um, she seemed a little tentative, I think. But um, but I like the the ideas. The obvi- idea obviously is, is very clever. What repelled you about Tony? About the show? Oh, about the pilot? Did anything repel you? And no. I'm asking you to give it sort of like a professorial sort of like, look, this is a pilot that actually almost didn't get made, right. but it actually got made. Mm. And the the episode two onward, the sh- rest of the show, if you get into it, is very different oh, than the pilot. Oh, in, the what, pilot, in what way, may I? Add? The pilot is cramming a lot of a lot in. Mm-hmm. The rest of the show is a much slower burn. Okay. It's very sort of orchestral. It mm. builds. It, then it crescendos very fast. Uh-huh. Things happen. And then oh, okay. it kind of goes back. And um, the, there's it's a lot more dialogue. Um, there's a lot more character development, obviously. Mm-hmm. But the pilot is trying to basically fit the world into an hour. Right. Well, yeah, I was surprised. That it was very kind of pop, which um, I found fun. I, I thought it was going to be sort of dark. I mean, and maybe that's what you're saying. It's going to get darker and slower yeah. and more, um, you know, because, I mean, my... Um, familiarity with that milieu comes through the Coppola movies. Yeah. You know, which have their own pace that's that's much slower and much more um, uh, there's very little humor in, in it. I mean, occasionally. But this was really crackling with funny dialogue and moments. 
Did you see any Scorsese in the pilot? Mm. Yeah. What I, did you see that... I felt what, I was looking at uh, uh, some of Goodfellas a little bit. I felt some of the influence of Goodfellas in a good way. And the use of music, you know, is very um, reminiscent of the way Marty uses pop music. Yes. And, and, you know, to, to great advantage. I mean, I think it works well in the show. It works well in Goodfellas. I say on the podcast, the music on the Sopranos is, is a character. Yeah. The choice. The choice is everybody I've asked is, oh, you got to ask David. Oh, you got to ask David. Like, why do they use that? How do they know to use that particular <laughs> bar of the song right there? And I got to ask David. But he's thinking about it. Everything is super intentional. Mm-hmm. Being on the set with Martin Scorsese, is it the same? Is everything intentional? Yeah. Very thought through, except Marty thinks cinematically at, you know, light speed. Yeah. So it doesn't feel belabored. Yeah. But it is very intentional, yeah. You write and executive produce for The Man in the High Castle. Now. Yeah, I, well, I just finished that because the, the show... Um, Wrap. Yeah, we we wrapped it up in season four. Okay. And the new, uh, the new and final episodes uh, come available in November, like in two months. Okay. Yeah. You did not write the pilot. No, I wasn't involved in you the You got first... involved in season two. Yeah, so okay. I worked on two, three, and four. What ingredients go into a pilot? Okay, like what does the salad bowl of a pilot for you look like? And from what you saw on a first look, did the Sopranos exhibit all those ingredients or have all of those ingredients? Yeah, well, it's hard to answer that because I, though I never watched the Sopranos, as I said, I've read a lot about it and I knew about Livia and I knew about. Um, the mother dynamic. Yeah, I knew, I read a great deal about that, and I knew about, of course, about the therapy. I know too much to be able to tell you whether Fair enough. they set the table properly or, yeah. or uh, optimally, but it, it certainly played for me great. I mean, to the point where I immediately uh, thought that my wife and I might spend the next few months binging the sixth season. It's interesting to me that you said that the one thing that repelled you was that you were kind of unsure about the therapy. That for me, I'm curious if you actually watch this, I'd love to hear from you again, like as you get through it. The therapy for me is why I keep rewatching it. Mm. No, I wasn't repelled, but I, I just didn't quite um, get what Lorraine Bracco was going for in her performance there. I'm curious how that will evolve for you. Me too. Really no, me too. Um, because it is, uh, I'm with you. I told, She was a little timid in the beginning. Yeah. But she's working into it. Mm-hmm. It's just Tony Soprano. Right. You're sitting across from her. And, um, you know, she's got to, she, I don't know if you've seen it in the pilot or not, but she's got to explain this to her yeah, husband. Yeah, yeah. You get uh, that in, in the restaurant. And, yes. and that um, dynamic is, um, was charged and awkward and kind of full of Oh, right. In the pilot, you see danger. how powerful he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She can't get a table, right. but he can. Very God, oh, very good fellows, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when he walks totally. into the Copacabana mm-hmm. with Lorraine Bracco, they they put him right up front. Right. Was anything missing from the pilot that you wanted? Any je ne sais quoi that you wished you had seen, or you know, this is considered the greatest drama TV drama mm-hmm. of all time, but it didn't have this. It didn't. Well, I'll tell you, it was an interesting choice. I won't. I won't say. It. I must said odd. It's an interesting choice that the the one mob murder is committed by the the young kid, not Christopher. Christopher, not by Tony. Mm. And what Tony does mostly in the pilot is collapse into unconsciousness. I mean, there's a couple of scenes where he falls down. Uh, panic attacks. It, w- yeah, in the grip of a panic attack. So that's. I mean, I like how that up 
you know, it, it, it turns uh, the genre on its head, basically. Um, not what I was expecting. I thought he would whack at least one guy in the pilot just to tell us exactly how lethal he can be. But, but quite uh, differently, he, he's shown just suffering from, yeah, anxiety. I love that you said that. Yeah, I never even, again, this is the benefit of talking to somebody who's seeing it for the first time. Yeah, you are convinced in the pilot that he's just a lovable teddy bear dad, family guy, mm-hmm. who happens to have a job right. that is, you know, on the other side of the law sometimes. That's tough, yeah. Couple more things before I let you get out of here. All right. I want to talk a little about alternate history storytelling. Mm. Mentioned just a moment ago that you write and executive produce The Man in the High Castle. Mm-hmm. I'd like to know how that project came to you. And between that story and the thing that Tarantino does from time to time Mm -hmm. with some of his movies in terms of alternate history, where do you see alternate history storytelling as a framework going in the future? Mm. Especially kind of in the world that we live in now. Does it work because it's like more escapist? I think alternate histories are a storytelling device that has become mainstream maybe as a result of video games. You know, which, yeah. which branch? And I'm not a video game player, but I have two sons who have played a lot, uh, and I watch them grow up and play them. So I understand how the narrative structure that they're used to is a branching structure, and you can go in one direction or another. I mean, they, they, they sort of played with that with Bandersnatch, the episode of Black Mirror, where you can influence yeah. the outcome of any given scene by you know pressing something on your remote. Um, and alternate histories are, in a sense, um, you know, a slightly larger... Um, version of that construction. So I, I see them as proliferating, actually, because I think audiences know how to um, interpret them. You know, they're not puzzled by them. They, they almost expect them in a funny way. Kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure? Is yeah. that the same kind of idea? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the that games, is the... Yeah. That is the model? I think it is. You know, where the narrator is not necessarily in charge, you are. You are. Yeah. Yeah. Part of your work also involves being what's known in the business as a script doctor. Yeah, I've done that a lot. What does it mean to be a script doctor, and what are some things that trigger a visit to the doctor's (laughs) office, so to speak? Well, a script doctor, you know, comes onto a project late, usually, when it's getting close to production, or sometimes, well, it's in production. And it's all about attending. It's like a... bring a script to the emergency room uh, and you have to figure out how to stop the bleeding before the, the script bleeds out. You know? What so are the things that cause the bleeding? It can be an, a- I mean, it can be an actor who, who's just either refusing to play the role as written, which then throws the, uh, the whole thing into uh, chaos. Um, or it could be a plot, uh, mechanical f- problem, like a plot flaw that's, that can't be hidden, it has to be actually fixed. Um, so, you know, sometimes the production will put a Band-Aid on a problem until it becomes apparent that it actually has to be reconceived, you know, even if, even if that involves reshoots, for instance. So that, that would be uh, a case to bring in a, somebody you'd consider a script doctor who would say, you, ne- you need to go back and spend three days reshooting this whole sequence so that B happens instead of A, and then we'll, we'll be back on track, you know. Who makes the decision... Usually the studio, because the director, I think, is normally resistant to that because for fear of losing control of the project. But usually some 
if there's a strong studio executive, will intervene and, and say, sorry, but we have to uh, take charge now uh, because we're, we're putting up the money. Therefore, you have to step back and let us solve the problem our way. Our way. Yeah. Of the projects that get doctored, mm-hmm. is there a high success rate? Or is there mm. a low success rate, or is it sort of like right down the middle? Like, does it is there a net positive in doing this? Yeah, I think I think so. Okay, I, I do think it's 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 usually only done when really necessary because it's expensive. Yeah, yeah, it, it's increasing cost. It's not a cost saving measure, right? Yeah. So it's a last resort in yeah. many cases. Um, but I think script doctors have saved movies. Yeah, a lot of major ones. Right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and sometimes it's really just about the ending. Like we need a better. Ending and you know after the ending of um, what was it um, the uh, Michael Douglas uh, thriller you're gonna edit this the Ghost in the Darkness <laughs> no no the famous uh, oh uh, not Basic Instinct um, no it was the uh, Fatal Attraction yeah so Fatal Attraction famously in Hollywood um, was uh, previewing to mediocre numbers. Because in the end, uh, the Glenn Close character kills herself, and and she stages the suicide to make it look like Michael Douglas had done it. Audiences just didn't like that. They didn't want that. They wanted to see her get hers. And the ending was chucked at great expense, and an entirely new final reel was shot. You know, the last 10 minutes of the movie were completely new, and the movie went through the roof. Once that happened, like, every thriller in Hollywood was subject to second-guessing. And I think that wasn't such a healthy thing, you know, that sort of panic and uh, epidemic of of um, overthinking of the ending uh, with, the, with, the, with the idea that if we get the perfect fatal attraction ending, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll make an extra $100 million. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's a grail that's, uh, you know, chasing that is uh, a dangerous thing, I think. I'm going to end with a lightning round, which is what I always do, which is just a quick sort of like uh, window into the world of Wesley Strick. All right. Um, last good book you read? Oh, um, you've been publicly shamed. Last film you enjoyed? Oh, I really liked Under the Silver Lake, which got a lot of derisive yeah. reviews, but I thought it was really fun. What's a show that you're into right now? Mm. Uh, what do I, oh, I, I recently discovered, again, late in the game, High Maintenance. Okay. And it became like my go-to favorite, like, blissed out experience. Love it. What music have you listened to in the past week? Um, I listen to a lot of electronica these days. Okay. Um, so what else? Any particular genre? Mm, house? House, techno, um, yeah, I'm trying to think who I've, maybe DJ Seinfeld. Okay. Mm-hmm. Finally, your favorite tea? Oh, Earl Grey, always. Why? Because I was told it helps with depression. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, it's good to know. Wesley, this has been a lot of fun. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Vic.